Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Hope you guys are all doing well. It is March 9th, and we're probably doing the fastest turnaround on an episode ever. I just did this interview uh, last night, and uh, it's very timely, so I'd, I want to get it out fast. And uh, just because conditions on the ground may change uh, over time. Uh, but we're going to talk about Ukraine with our guests. But before we get into that, I do just want to say a big thank you again to everybody who listens to the show and shares the show. And of course, uh, to my awesome Patreon supporters uh, who financially support the show and uh, uh, therefore, by extension, uh, build morale and uh, esprit de corps within the, uh, the podcast team, which is, which is me. Uh, keeping me motivated and uh, keeping me going after it. So I am kind of out of work at the moment, just waiting on some medical uh, to come back from the FAA so I can get back to work. But um, sort of enjoying some time off here with family, getting some stuff done. Uh, you know, this wasn't an unexpected uh, time period to be out of work. So, we, you know, we kind of saved up a little bit to, to soften the blow. So hopefully we'll get some information here soon and get back to work. But I am trying to use this time to uh, get caught up with the podcast. I know I've been kind of slow at getting episodes out and things. Uh, but uh, we've got this episode. I've got another one that I've already edited, which I'll be dropping later in the month. And uh, But this one, yeah, I want to turn this one around pretty fast because of current events and the way things are going in the world. Uh, so for, for my Patreon supporters, I will not be releasing this one early because I'm just going to release it all together. Uh, but like I said, I do have one later in the uh, month and uh, I think I'm going to have something special for you guys uh, to go along with uh, go along with that and uh, of course we do have bonus content which I provide uh, generally for every episode there's been one or two that probably slipped by me just uh, just kind of the nature of the guest and the interview and stuff but uh, we do have that for this one as well and last thing before we get into it is uh, I do want to remind you of the authentic media organization which I have been working with and this is a subscription service that is started uh, very recently within the past month uh, it's a community that specializes in behind the scenes stories and deep dive topics for military aviation enthusiasts and I know that the plan uh, moving forward is to expand uh, not just into aviation but really all facets of, of military and technology uh, maybe even further just kind of depends on how things go uh, their mission is offering you the chance to experience the thrill and excitement of flying these fascinating aircraft through the eyes of the people who were there. So, got uh, multiple pilots uh, and crew that are working on this uh, system, uh, this, this program, providing input. So, for me, I'm sort of like a, a freelance reporter, if you will, and uh, currently working on a special operations aviation uh, series. Uh, I've already talked to a AC-130 aerial crewman or aerial gunner, and. Uh, a uh, MH6 Little Bird pilot uh, that I actually went to school with, and I've got uh, another couple guys lined up to finish up that series. So you can find that there. So if you're interested in checking it out, again, it is a subscription service. Um, it is uh, $6.99 a month, but if you use the promo code CASMO, you get 15% off. Uh, you can check that out. But I know they're they're pumping out uh, content uh, every month. I think you'll get a good two or three uh, different episodes. They're all audio for now. I think there is an intent to uh, expand that to video as time goes by and also do some live events for uh, for subscribers. So if you want to check that out, I'll make sure to put the link down in the show notes as well as remind you about that, uh, that code that you can use to check it out. So the war in Ukraine is entering its second year with really no end in sight and no appreciable gains for the Putin regime. And the world has really gone from a sort of sick fascination of watching Ukraine defend its borders to an almost wanton display of support uh, by the way of arms and equipment. 
Our guest knows more about that the most and what he can share. He did uh, last night in an interview with me that I'm going to share with you now. Really looking forward to it. I've known Doug Livermore for over a decade. He's a special forces officer in the Army, a Green Beret, for those of you who are familiar with the term. He served on active duty, then transitioned to the Guard while also serving inside the Beltway, first as a government contractor. And now he's the Director of Special Operations, Irregular Warfare, Sensitive Activities, and Special Projects for the United States Navy. That's a mouthful. He's also a fellow at the Joint Special Operations University. Doug has been, as you can imagine, watching the situation in Ukraine very closely and has a better insight into what's going on more than most of us, why it's happening, where it's happening, and where it's going from here. So this episode's guest, Doug Livermore. Red Knight Slasher 02 copies, clear to engage, danger close, within now 45 meters from friendly. Okay, Slasher's in danger, danger close, so watch out. Roger that, welcome. What what is up with this uh, this star? Is is this really the new army logo? Oh yeah, I suppose it is. I mean, in addition, going back to uh, be all you can be, we're we're bringing in a new logo, and it's just this gold star, I guess. I, I'm I'm a hundred percent on board with be all you can be. Yep. Um, I don't know that I like the star. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like they were just trying to go for like a a minimalist. So yeah. You know, coming off of the old U.S. you know the U.S. Army white star on the black background with like the the gold yeah. like lining around it all, they just want to make it super simple. And you know, maybe they're going for brand recognition and figure kids will start to associate just the, the gold star with the army. I, I don't know. Yeah, gold <laughs> like the gold star you would get in kindergarten. So too, can you get it in the army? I mean, that's kind of fitting in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate the old commercials. I mean, I, you know, I'm a B, I, I always tell people I'm a BL, you can be a kid. Cause that's, that's when I joined the army. That was still the slogan. And then we had, um, what was it after? It was army of one, I think. Uh, yeah, I think army of one was the one that came right after BL. You can yeah. Be. And it was only for a little while. Cause everyone questioned it. Like, well, what does that mean? Yeah. It definitely didn't sell the whole like teamwork. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. To embrace. Well, you'll yeah. remember, I mean, like they even had like uh, a commercial of like the dude by himself running through the desert. <laughs> yeah. In his PTs. Yeah. yeah. And he's running the opposite direction because there's like tanks and stuff going like past him, going the other direction. Yeah. Yeah. It was that, that, that was a that wasn't the best motto ever. Yeah. Um, I mean, that one, like you said, that one didn't last very long. Yeah. I, um, I was a, a mortar platoon leader in Korea when they did a commercial. I, I don't remember what the slogan was then. I don't. Maybe it was after that one. I don't remember. But um, they were making us like walk around and take pictures, you know, all this stuff. And I didn't think nothing of it, you know, whatever. They were taking pictures. And then fast forward like two years later, I'm at Fort Knox and I'm, I'm doing an indoor change of command rehearsal, you know, because you always had to rehearse just in case it rained on Tuesday. Um, so we're indoors. And I'm, I'm standing in this gymnasium talking to, to some of my guys and I just happen to look over their shoulder and there's this huge like banner poster, and, <laughs> you know, it's like black and white and stuff. And I look over the shoulder and I'm like, holy crap, that's private so-and-so. And I'm like, wait, that's specialist so-and-so. And I start scrolling through. I'm like, oh my God, there I am. <laughs> I, nice. I totally should have stolen the poster, but it was massive. Yeah. I mean, that, that definitely sounds like a, a bit of an involved operation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't have a backpack. Yeah. 
Yeah, what sure I, see. I, did, I did look it up. Yeah, there's Army Strong from 06 to oh, 18. that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, that was. Uh, I. That's pretty telling too that we can't even remember, and it was like the majority of our career. Right. I well, remember. I mean, a when you switch it all the time, and and b it's like, yeah, you know, we 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 had already been had, so <laughs> so we don't really pay attention to all that. That's true. <laughs> that's true. That and the uh, Soldier's Creed, I I never. I never really learned that one because I, I was already in. I was like, well, I didn't need a creed before. What do I, what do I need one now? Seems to be doing all right without. Yeah, I got this far without a creed. I don't, I don't know that I need one. Um, but anyway, well, when's, when's the last time I saw you? I think, I think it was 2015, 16, maybe. Were we do it when we did some sort 15. of a uh, group link up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Down in. Uh, Gosh, I've forgotten all those places. Is that Reston? Is that the nice little like suburbia? Uh, or um, not really suburbia, but oh, shoot. Well, I mean, I guess if, if I'm trying to think, like Reston would have been probably too far out. We would have would have been like Alexandria, Old Town area. Yeah, <clears throat> I would have thought. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's probably been about that long. Yeah, it's been a been a hot minute. Um, and you have accelerated your life since then. Cause I think back then you were, you were just doing some contract work. You were out of active duty, doing contract work, doing the guard thing, I think. And now you're, now you're a grand poobah, uh, a master of your domain. Um, and I've been paying attention. I've been wanting to get you on here for quite a while. Um, but we're a year into this whole Ukraine nonsense, uh, which <laughs> It's is wild to watch in a lot of reasons. Um, some of it terrifying, some of it comical. Um, just when I, when I put it into the context of, you know, we spent so much of our lives worried about a war with Russia and now we're watching somebody else fight a war with Russia and we're just kind of like scratching our heads. Like what is, what is going on? At least, at least I am. I mean, you're, you're obviously seeing things from a different lens. Um, but I did want to talk to you about that. So I, I want to start with kind of your take because I've seen different, different people talk about this um what is what is the end goal here what is what is russia trying to do what do they want well i mean despite uh despite what some of the russian propaganda might have you think you know every indication was that vladimir putin and his inner circle in the kremlin honestly thought that they were going to be able to launch a lightning quick blitzkrieg style assault yeah. on Ukraine and topple the, uh, the government of President Zelensky and install a, a puppet government and basically bring the entire country uh, back within their sphere of influence, kind of similar to the way it existed uh, before 2014 and the, the Maidan revolution. Uh, yeah. you know, really what, what the desired end state for Russia uh, was kind of akin to the relationship they have right now with Belarus, where you know they've got their incredibly tight alliance and they're continuously you know, it, weaving the, the the countries of Belarus and the Russian Federation together. In fact, there has been some open source reporting I think over the last few weeks about you know the the surprising extent to which Russia is pursuing a a holistic effort to basically fuse Belarus into the Russian Federation. And, and that was honestly the full intent uh, initially in February of 2022 when the Russians launched their 
I mean, really an escalation of the invasion that had been going on since 2014 when the Russians and, and Russian-backed separatists uh, went into Donbas and annexed Crimea and, and et cetera, et cetera. So now, of course, after the failure of the initial Russian offensive in February, that started in February of 22, we saw the absolutely catastrophic failure of that offensive and the massive losses that the Russians faced. I mean, the fact that they made it essentially to the gates of Kyiv before just getting decimated and being forced to fall back, I think caused a, a pretty fundamental shift in strategy and forced Putin and, and the rest of his inner circle to severely uh, scale back their their intentions for Ukraine. I mean, we saw the, the you know this new revised and, and reduced scope of their desired end state in the sham referendums that were held a few months back, uh, and the efforts by Russia to to annex the four oblasts uh, in eastern Ukraine and Crimea into the Russian Federation. I mean, despite the fact that even when they held the referendum, the Russians didn't control all the territory in the oblasts and. Obviously, it was a complete violation of international law because you can't hold a referendum like that in the middle of a war. I mean, for God's mm-hmm. sakes, most of the Ukrainians who had lived in those areas that would have certainly and still want to have a say in what were what would happen with those oblasts, like had fled the area and gone to either Western Ukraine or to other countries. Um, so anyway, all to say, like at this point, really the only thing that Putin can hope to eck out of this scenario is to hold significant portions of the oblasts that they're currently in uh, and then integrate them into the Russian Federation. And obviously he's doing this all under the guise of he's going after the the neo-Nazis in Kyiv, which is ridiculous because Zelensky, President Zelensky is a Jew, um, but that he's, you know, trying to, to liberate the Russian speaking people uh, of Eastern Ukraine, which is consistent with the recently released the recently published Russian national security strategy, which talks about the Russian world and kind of asserts a, a geo strategic interest in basically any land on which there are Russian speaking people. Um, so yeah, so at this point, Putin's looking for like whatever win he can get in order to justify the massive losses, uh, the reputational damage, to, to Russia, the absolute drumming that its uh, economy has taken. Because at the end and of the this day, this wasn't a strong economy in the first place, right? No, certainly not. The the economy going into the war wasn't particularly strong. I mean, it, we most folks that watch this recognize that you know it's a it's a hydrocarbon based economy, which is highly subject to the ebbs and flows of pricing. Um, so over the last several years, we've seen the Russian economy rise and fall rather precipitously. Uh, so going to war on that footing certainly wasn't particularly wise. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of disagreement as to what impact the sanctions have had on the Russian economy. Uh, unfortunately, for, for most uh, objective analysts, the Russian government basically had stopped uh, generating the the sort of metrics and the statistics that would be required to actually do a honest 
an objective accounting of how the Russian economy is doing. So at uh, Putin's State of the Union address, I believe it was two or three weeks ago, he was touting the strength and the resiliency of the Russian economy. But every indication is that the Russian economy is absolutely destroyed. And particularly as we go into the rest of uh, 2023, uh, as sanctions continue to bite, the, 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 the Russians have even started to reduce their uh, uh, gas production. Uh, so all these things are going to come up, as well as not to say anything about the overwhelming percentage of their GDP that's now being committed to the war effort as they move to a wartime footing. Yeah. What is the, like, you, obviously you follow this a ton more than me, so I'm asking stupid questions, but I mean, what's the impact on the people right now? Because, I mean, just a, a lay person watching is seeing a lot of, you know, unrest and things going on. I mean, I was in a course uh, down in Florida in March of last year, and there was five Russian pilots in the class. You know, the war just started. And, um, you know, it, it, granted, it, it, when you're in America and your country just invaded, a fr- you know, like, of course, you're going to act like, oh, this is terrible. Um, but they did seem genuine in their 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 idea that, you know, yeah, we're not for this. But I mean, w- talk about that, what we're seeing as far as the Russian, the, the, the populace, because you're talking about, you know, Putin wants to unite all the Russian speaking people. It doesn't sound like the Russian speaking people are that passionate about it. Yeah, no, and that that's, I think that's the general trend we've seen. I mean, um, obviously, the Russian government through the, the, the vast majority of all the media is state controlled has been pushing since 2014 and in, in the fall of the previous regime in, in uh, Ukraine been pushing propaganda to uh, to condition the Russian people to accept these sorts of losses and the, the inevitability of, of this war. Um, I mean, of course, if you watch some of the Russian news, and I'm using air quotes that you obviously can't see, <laughs> like that some of the most ridiculous material that's completely over the top and, and no one outside of the closed system of Russia would would or does believe it. I mean, there was a piece that I just saw, it was yesterday or the day before, of Russian state media talking about how, you know, Western economies have been so battered by their support to Ukraine that the British people are now resorting to eating squirrels in restaurants because there's no food to be eaten. <laughs> just absolutely <laughs> off the wall ridiculousness. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think... I don't think the Russian people are stupid. I think they know what's going on. There, are, there is incredibly limited access to outside media. Okay. Uh, the Russian government has done everything in their power to make their that environment inside the Russian Federation completely inhospitable to foreign media, to any sort of foreign news sources. Uh, they closely control and censor the internet. Um, but that said, you know, Certainly some information is getting in um, and some information is getting out. And what we've seen is uh, certainly some very, very intense uh, and localized protests in Moscow, St. Petersburg, uh, obviously in all sorts of the more far flung areas where have been particularly hard hit by the uh, first wave of Russian mobilization. Uh, but, But ultimately, 
the challenge becomes is the Russian people don't really have a great alternative to Putin mm-hmm. and the current regime. And right. frankly, when you look at the people on the street in their interviews, um, you know, it's, it's, it's generally a mixture between those that just are spouting the ridiculous Russian propaganda, state media propaganda about like all the Ukrainians are Nazis. And yeah. this is an existential war against uh, NATO and the United States. And if they lose in Ukraine, like Ukrainians are going to be eating babies or whatever the case may be. Like, so there's that wing, um, mm-hmm. which I think largely, you know, you can discount as just hyperbole. Um but, you know, you actually do see incredibly bra- small number, but very brave Russians are willing to actually express their, their uh, opposition to the war, their opposition to, to the Putin regime. Which um, is illegal now. Right. right which is incredibly illegal, uh, though for years, you know, the Russian security services at Putin's command have cracked down horrifically on both opposition groups and in particular opposition leaders. I mean... Um, multiple opposition leaders have been assassinated. Uh, mm-hmm. Navalny, the, the head, really the last remaining opposition leader has been in prison for some time now. Uh, and there have been multiple attempts on his life. So if nothing else, you, you know, I do have to give Putin credit. You know, he is, he is behaving like, a, like the wily former KGB officer that he is. And that he's been very strategic and forward thinking in eliminating any opposition or alternatives to him. In fact, that's a lot of the analysis that you know, when we look at <clears throat> Putin's inner circle, you have like uh, uh, Shoigu, Gerasimov, uh, you know, as well as the Russian PMC uh, commanders or, or owners, Prizoygin being one of those. Uh, and the extent to which he very carefully balances these subordinates against each other uh, in a way that prevents any of them from becoming, in my opinion, prevents any of them from becoming a a direct threat to his rule uh, and his authority. Um, So I think, you know, as we look to Russian, how the Russian people feel about the war and whether or not they're willing to endure these sacrifices, I will offer that the first wave of mobilizations, the 300,000, if that, that the, that the Russian government scraped together, uh, and most analysis so shows that they didn't hit that number that they had actually sought. Um, most of those, those conscriptions occurred outside of the major uh, Russian metropolitan area, so St. Petersburg, mm. Moscow, it was actually more from the ethnic minorities in the Far East, uh, though certainly if there is another round of mass mobilization, which I think we're watching very carefully because, frankly, we don't know how the Russians continue the war without that, uh, those recruitments would end up probably hitting the urban populations, which would only exacerbate the, the protesting and the opposition that you see. So is it is it... Uh... Is it drawing from those, you said, kind of those far-flung ethnic minority? Is it is it an effort to just get rid of those? Or is it just because nobody will notice? Uh, you, you know, because because they are descending kind of meat into the grinder, but they're not sharing that information back home. So 
if you just take from these small little places, then no one really notices the loss. Is that kind of the strategy you think? Yeah. Yeah. So it's less, the one thing that a lot of folks don't realize when you start talking about Russia and Ukraine is they want to hearken back to the last time they've seen Russia fight a, or Russians fight a major conflict, World War II. And the, the, the Soviet Union was significantly different than Russia today. The Soviet Union drew on you know, a massive population from all across the countries that were a member of it, to include right. a lot of Ukrainians, um, whereas the Russian Federation today has a much smaller population. It's a shrinking population. It's an increasingly older population. In fact, mm-hmm. Russia is one of the few countries in the world where over the last decade, life expectancy has actually dropped uh, hmm. just based upon you know, a lot of alcoholism, a lot of drug abuse, uh, etc. Now, I'm sure the war will do absolutely horrific things for that, yeah. for those metrics. Um, but that's, of course, a bit of, a, of an outlier. Um, so, but to your question, yes. Uh, the Kremlin's strategy, like they can't really afford to lose population, but they can afford to lose population from the outskirts that won't be right. noticed as much, which is the same reason why the Russians have been undertaking this massive recruitment drive within the penal colonies, within the Russian prison system. Because again, Mm. they're looking to, like, they know, given their lack of effective tactics, the poor equipping of their troops, the fact that, like, they received zero training, all they can really do at this point is keep feeding the meat grinder. And the only way they can do that without really facing widespread opposition is to rely upon populations that at least from the Kremlin's perspective, the people that would actually be able to protest and affect any change aren't going to notice, at least not yet. Right. Yeah. So are, are they at this point? Because if we go back in time, we go back a year, what were the kind of units that were used in the push? Like, were they like frontline you know, these are our main dudes. Oh, wait, they just got their asses handed to them. We've got nothing left. Or are they kind of keeping that in reserve? Because we've heard that in the past. Like, oh, Putin's keeping his, yeah, his good yeah. stuff in reserve. You know, I remember that being like six months ago, kind of the meme. I haven't heard that one in a while. Um, but is there any truth to that? Or are we just at the point where we're just throwing stuff against the wall? No, there, there's no truth to that. The Russians expended all of their best frontline units in the invasion. They thought they were going to go straight into Kiev and topple the government and this whole thing was going to be over relatively quickly and bloodlessly. Uh, there, the, uh, Russian paratrooper force, as you recall, they seized that airfield near Kiev or tried to seize that airfield near, near Kiev and got absolutely decimated. Uh, the Russian government has been, the Russian military has been throwing, uh, all basically their most elite forces, like their Spetsnaz special operations forces, their remaining paratrooper forces, their uh, their Marine equivalent units, uh, directly into basically into fights for which they're unsuited. They're, they've been using them much like conventional forces. They did so right. during the invasion uh, or the you know, the escalation of the invasion in February of twenty two. Had absolutely horrific casualties all across the board. Uh, and then even what we saw over basically the last six months as the, uh, the front lines tended to solidify and the Russians continued with these human wave attacks is certainly like initially they 
they tried to achieve breakthroughs with some of these more elite, well-trained and well-equipped units, and they were just absolutely obliterated. I mean, we've been looking at the, uh, the effective percentage rates of several of these elite units, and you know, it's going to take years and years, even outside of war. The problem, like, the, the, war, the war has to end, basically, at this point, before the Russians are, would be able to do the re, sort of reconstitution that would be required mm-hmm. to get any of these actually like trained and, and elite units back up to any sort of combat effectiveness. So yeah, I, I recall all those conversations too when you know you had the the Russian apologists or however you want to phrase it, the folks that for whatever reason seem to really think that the Russians could or should uh, win this thing. Basically, trying to argue that no, no, Putin's just super wily. You know the. <laughs> the, right. the, the the thrust on Kiev was a very elaborate feint to like right. <laughs> get the Ukrainians to redirect their forces there, and then they're going to come through Donbas and take that. And yeah. you know, but none of that was true. Like the Russians really thought they were going to take Kiev and they were going to win. Their forces got destroyed, and then as we were talking about before, then they had to rescope their objectives, scale them way back. But even then, now they're to the point where the best and brightest of their capabilities have been destroyed and they're just feeding the meat grinder. I mean, I guess the other thing that I would just quickly mention is when you talk about, you know, the the the, the pride of the Russian military. They lost the Moskva. You know, they've lost multiple major combatant vessels. Uh, you, know, you talk about some of their uh, elite guard units have been destroyed like that's that's verifiable there's no there's no hiding that and so anyone that would argue that like oh the russians must have been they're they're still holding their best in reserve just really haven't been following the the situation very closely well because that's that's what we've been told for so long when it comes to putin right he's he 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 wrestles gorillas and he rides horses you know with no shirt on and he you know, he's beast mode all the time. And so we've, over the past, I, I don't even know how many years at this point, you know, we've been led to believe that he's a, he's a mental Superman. You know, he was a, he was a KGB agent. Wasn't he like a, he was an analyst, wasn't he? Like, he's not like a, you know, no, I mean, he, he, yeah, I mean, he did work uh, very few, for a very short period of time in the field. Uh, okay. Every evaluation, in fact, there've been a few reports done upon his performance as a, as a case officer wasn't particularly stellar uh he was actually not thought very highly of his his evaluations weren't great i think that so i don't necessarily i don't put a whole lot of stock in his time as an intelligence officer being an indication of his wiliness or his intelligence i do think like uh like many autocrats he has survived this long because he has developed uh an innate sense of basically how to manipulate the people's the mass writ large, but also right. like we were discussing earlier, also how does he manipulate and, and play the folks in his inner circle off against each other? Now, back to your point about how in the West, uh, per, particular before 2022, there was this sense of you know, Vladimir Putin is a super genius and he's a he's a real man's man, like you said, riding horses, yeah. you know, shirtless and uh, judo, you know, all the judo he does. Yeah. Um, you know, what we have found, uh, 
upon closer observation and analysis is a lot of that was him cultivating that image for sure, the purposes right. that he's been using it for. Now he's, like I said, wasn't a great intelligence officer by any stretch of the imagination or by any objective uh, analysis. His judo, there's some questions as to, to, you know, to what extent has he actually achieved the requirements for his black belt. Um, but all that to yeah, say Because who's going to tell the, the leader of you right, know, the, exactly. the country, yeah, like, oh, no, you, you didn't yeah. kick high enough or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he's manipulated. He's, he's a master manipulator. Right. Uh, Which has nothing to do with being an intelligence aid. Like it, one yeah. doesn't necessarily equal the other. Right. No, of course not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's what we've seen here in particular, like the, we've been shown that the emperor has no clothes in 2022 right. and now into 2023, because you know, he certainly, he, he is trying desperately to hold on to that image. Uh, you know, we saw the state of the union address a few weeks ago that he, he presented uh, to the Duma, the Russian government, uh, their, their legislative branch where, you know, he certainly cut an imposing image and he talks about how everything's under control and everything's proceeding exactly as he'd foreseen, but <laughs> outside of Russia and outside of that closed information system, when he says those things, it just lends greater credibility to the fact that he is not in control. He is desperate. You know, of course, it's, I recall in mid-22, there was a lot of speculation as to perhaps he had some health issues. You know, I don't know if that's true at all, but frankly, I think that he is just very desperately trying to cling to power uh, for as long as he can and trying to just eck out some victory that he can point to and say, see, the, the quote-unquote special military operation was worth it because we did, we accomplished something which right. I don't think any objective observer in Russia or outside would would ever say, you know, getting small portions of four Ukrainian oblasts, which, by the way, we completely obliterated. So our non-existent economy will probably be completely unable to ever rebuild them and make them productive. Contributors to the Russian Federation would, would say that it was worth this invasion, particularly given the sanctions, the, the impact on the Russian economy, their international prestige. Etc. Yeah, uh, I, I think about not just the the loss of life and now having to to scrape up people to throw at this, but from the equipment side, you know, given just like you said the, the hit on the economy and, and everything, but you know they're losing some serious some serious hardware that they've put a lot of money in it, and it and it probably wasn't very good hardware by Western standards, but it was good to them and it was very expensive. And they seem to be losing it hand over fist. Yeah, no, and that's absolutely something that we've been tracking very, very closely. Even if you discount the Ukrainian numbers that the the, you know, the Ministry of Defense provides, which obviously they have, we all understand they have a bias, and certainly they sure. you know, they are going to paint as rosy a picture as possible of the, the casualties they're inflicting on the Russians. So putting that aside just looking at some of the more objective sources, open source intelligence that are looking at this every single day uh, and providing what I would consider to be actually incredibly accurate information. The Russians have really blown through uh, a lot of their top end hardware. And we can talk about some of the second and third order effects of that here in a minute. Uh, we looked at, as of the last count, uh, 
the Russians had lost 40 to 50% of their main battle tanks, which you got to realize that is like their current gen or top tier for this gen generation of tanks. So right. like the, the upgraded T-72s, uh, the T-90s, you know, all, all of those systems that they've been putting so much money into over the last uh, decade, decade and a half. Um, you know, they went through, I think the last number I saw was about a third of their armored personnel carriers. So again, really heavy hit on their like BMP threes and twos, mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that the Russians, as everyone's been following, basically had to go into their, their cold storage stockpiles and start pulling out. Like we've seen BMP ones on the front line. We've seen T 62s. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, the most ridiculous thing I had seen here in the last week, you probably, if you Google it, you can find a lot of good video and imagery of it. Um, uh, MTLBs, which were yeah. these old, like 1950s, early 60s era. Yeah, uh, it's like their version of a 113. Right. So pulling yeah. those out of storage and slapping World War II uh, naval cannons on them or uh, yeah. auto loaders on them and trying to send and sending them to the front lines. I don't know. I don't. I've seen video of them going to the front. I don't think I've seen anything yet of them on the front lines, but you know, that that's where the Russians are at as far as uh, ground equipment uh, in the air. Um, you know, they're, they've, they haven't lost as much in the air, but they also haven't really achieved anything for the most part in the sense right. that the Russian air force is several times larger than the Ukrainian air force yet they've been completely unable to achieve air superiority over Ukraine, a neighboring country, like (laughs) operating from their home, from their own soil. They've been unable to achieve that. Uh, Frankly, I mean, the Ukrainians started the war with very minimal air defense. Uh, They had a lot of shoulder fired like man pads and some of the other uh, equivalents from like the Brits and the French, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's only been relatively recently that they've gotten some of the more advanced high-end air defense systems. Regardless, uh, the, the Russians have had some considerable losses. Uh, you know, a lot of their high-end, like Gen 4 Plus fighters, uh, they've blown through almost their, I mean, I would say a high percentage of their precision-guided munitions, uh, which as you know, as an aviator, like once you go through PGMs, you're kind of at a huge disadvantage because with dumb bombs, you have to get lower and slower, which yeah. exposes you to also to more of these more advanced air defense systems. Um, but so we've seen an interesting thing with the Russian Air Force, like recognizing their vulnerabilities and I think even better appreciating the inability of Russia to replace any of those losses that they might suffer have really just stayed out of Ukrainian airspace. Uh, we mm. see... Russian aircraft operating in Belarus. We see them operating over Russian territory, um, but generally, to the extent that they're able to, you know, using standoff capabilities beyond visual range to try to engage Ukrainian aircraft or, or launching you know, the few cruise missiles they have left uh, to try to hit uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, Ukrainian infrastructure. But uh, real quickly, what I wanted to talk about, though, is some of the second and third order effects. Uh, What we've seen kind of across the globe is a lot of the, um, I I guess I would call them the client states for the Russian Federation that 
have been investing heavily or were thinking about investing heavily in uh, Russian military equipment have really started to reconsider mm-hmm. the value of that. Um, you know, for I think everyone's kind of known, everyone that looks at military matters has known for decades and decades, even going back to like the 70s and 80s, that Russian tanks were and Soviet tanks were vastly inferior just based upon some of the odd design choices with auto loaders and yeah. You know, well, the, well, it was a, it was a, it was a, a game of volume, right? It was just right, exactly. as much out on the board as possible. It doesn't matter if it's good. It's just, yeah. you have a lot of it quantity um, and quality all the time. Yeah. So like, so certainly I don't think anyone, none of the, the international clients for the Russian Federation were, had any, any illusions about the quality of their, their tanks and armored personnel carriers. However, I do think what we've seen that was a little, I think, surprising to a lot of these countries that were, that either already have Russian or Soviet aircraft uh, or we're thinking of, of uh, undertaking some development or purchases with the Russians on some fourth gen or potentially fifth generation fighters decided that that was not something that they wanted to do, uh, particularly based upon the performance of some of these airframes in, I mean, in, uh, in Ukraine. And I guess the last thing I'll just say, uh, you know, as a Navy guy, obviously I, I need to talk about the, the Russian fleet. Uh, you know, like we talked about before, the Moskva, uh, one of their, one of the few flagships they actually had left in the Russian fleet, uh, got destroyed and sunk, and, and the Russian Navy has actually taken a bit of a battering in the Black Sea. But what's important to note when you look at the effect on the Russian Navy of Ukraine is the, that there's basically no longer any ability for the Russians to produce large surface combatants. Uh, because a lot of that equipment, particularly the engines and, and some of the other critical components, are made in, in Ukraine. Um, mm. um, <laughs> and obviously, they're not selling any of that stuff to, uh, to the Russians anytime soon, nor do I think they ever will again. And frankly, the Russian industry has not, had not gotten to the point where they were able to produce a lot of those before the war. And certainly given the sanctions and a lot of the other restrictions that, are, that the Russian economy is facing right now, they really don't have the ability to develop some of those. So um, I think this will probably cause a pretty, a, a fundamental shift. Uh, the Russians and in particular the Russian Navy had always thought of itself as a, a, a global powers Navy on par with the United States on par with great Britain. It's you know, on par with the French, but the fact that they have no functioning aircraft carrier. Now uh, their last carrier is, basically in port for repairs forever. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the majority of their other major or large surface combatants are either in complete disrepair, uh, stuck in port, or have been sunk. And they really don't have the industrial capability to, to replace them. So the Russian Navy, I think, is going to have to go through some real soul searching. And I suspect we will see it kind of more akin to, say, like, the Iranian Navy in the sense that a lot of small surface combatants that can really can't maintain a, a persistent overseas presence, but can do the occasional expeditionary operation, uh, which you know, I think will have sec- a number of effects on Russia's ability to project power around the world. Was the Russian Navy, like, I'm sure they, they think of themselves as a global, but were they actually global? I mean, were they out kind of patrolling or that have they generally been sort of close to close to home? 
Yeah, so that's that's a great point, and and I've written before, and 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 I've spoken on this before that even at its height, the Soviet Union mm-hmm. was not really the, the the equivalent of the United States. I mean, all throughout the Cold War, you look at the the Soviet economy, you look at the Soviet influence or their ability to actually like build functional alliances. Uh, you look at their military, their conventional military capability, and it was never ever on par with the United States or, or NATO or any of or any of our allies. And that's a great point. Like the even during the Cold War, the Soviet Navy they maintained a fairly robust uh, ballistic missile submarine capability and attack boats. Um, but frankly, from a, a surface fleet perspective, they were never even close to the United States. I mean, the United States has prided itself on having ten-ish or so carry fleet carriers uh, at any given time, the ability to have several of those underway with an entire task force. And even at the height of the Cold War, the Soviet Union basically had one uh, right. fully functional carrier, but wasn't even a, it was actually under their, under their system designated as, I believe it was a, uh, uh, a missile frigate of some sort. Yeah, um, I'd read something like that. It wasn't even really considered a carrier. It was Yeah, by by <laughs> western happened standards, happen yeah. to have planes on it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. By western standards, it was it was not a fleet carrier. But right. to your point, yes, like the Russian Navy or the Soviet Navy, which of course then Russia inherited after the fall of the Soviet Union, um was was nor has it or sorry, was not nor is it currently uh the sort of Navy that would be befitting a true global power. It's got some expeditionary capability. They can sortie a small fleet every now and again to go do something very specific, but they're incapable of maintaining the sort of overseas naval presence that say like the United States does every single day. Right. Yeah. You bring up a good point. I wanted to talk about that with, you know, the equipment and and the showcase of equipment. And you're right. I think, I think anyone who's paid attention to, Soviet era equipment versus U.S. equipment knows that generally speaking, yeah, U.S. equipment is going to be better. Um, you know, I've I don't know this for hundred percent, but I've read you know analysis that well, why does why did why did the Soviet Union have so many types of air defense capabilities when the U.S. really only had like a couple? You know, we had like the Stinger, we had the Patriot, you know, and then before that you had like you know some other weird stuff. Um, but it was because it was a counter, right? Because they already recognized that they couldn't match us air, you know, in the air. So it's like, well, how do we, how do we, uh, how do we counter the U.S. air capability? Well, we'll just have a shit ton of of SAMs and and yeah. aircraft. Um, but the point being is, yeah, all this equipment now is on is on display, and I think just like with Putin, I think a lot of us, myself included, you know, you, you kind of looked at some of this newer stuff. You're like, oh wow, you know, Russia's getting their shit together. The T ninety. Oh, you, I, I don't know how many times I've had somebody tell me a T ninety is such a great tank. You know, and even to the point that it's better than an M one. Hmm. Um, you know, and now you're seeing it like, well, hmm, maybe not so much. Um, and so I, it's burst in that bubble, just like with Putin, where you, you kind of got this, this cult of personality for a person, but you also kind of had it for some of the equipment, um, uh, you know, the SA 22s and some of this, I mean, shit, I've seen more than one video of a Russian air defense system, you know, firing a missile and the missile comes back and hits the launcher, you know, and shit like that. You're like, how, how is this happening? This is supposed to be, you know, top tier, uh, you know, edge cutting, uh, equipment and, um, and it's not working right. 
So it's, it's terrifying to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so real briefly on that, I think you're absolutely right. The Soviet doctrine and now the Russian doctrine was really kind of designed around denying the United States or its allies the advantages of our superior mm-hmm. systems. And you saw that with the air defense systems, uh, you know, even going back, like kind of the testing ground for that for the Soviets would have been Vietnam when they were pumping basically every air defense system that they produced into North Vietnam to basically battlefield test them against the, the U.S. Um, so, you know, all to say, like, there, there's, a, there's a logic behind it. Um, I will say specifically to some of that high-end technology, I, you mentioned the, uh, the surface-to-air missile systems. And yes, I can think of at least two videos that I've personally seen and reposted and did some analysis on one being a, uh, I think it was an S 300 in Syria. Uh, yeah. The one where it like launches doesn't actually, I think get that far outside the tube before it falls back and, and right. blows up the whole launcher. And then I know the one you're talking about, I believe it was a SAM system firing from, I think it was in Belgrade in uh, Western Russia. And you had, it was at a night shot, which was great. So you can actually see the, the, uh, the the streak of the missile taking off and then circling right back and slamming into the launcher. Yeah, you um, can't even make that shit up, you know, like that's no, just no, out of bounds. But, <laughs> but it's a fascinating trend. So one of the huge challenges that the Soviet Union had during the Cold War was that they were completely unable to build microchips uh, or mm. any of the high end electronics to the quality or the scale of the United States. And nothing has changed. So Russia in the contemporary era, uh, particularly over the last year, has been been largely unable to get the sort of high-end technology and the chips that they need to actually make any of this supposedly high-tech equipment work. I mean, in fact, you've probably seen the reports where more recently some of these uh, guided missiles and rockets and PGMs and, and some other technology, they've basically been trying to like force substandard dual use tech, like, like, uh, chips out of, uh, I think it was like some kids toys or chips Hmm. out of like, uh, refrigerators and washers, like smart refrigerator and washers and trying to repurpose them to use them in, in, uh, some of their quote unquote high tech equipment simply Hmm. because they, they're because of the sanction, like before the sanctions or regardless of the sanctions, the Russians haven't had an indigenous or, or a, a, an organic Russian capability of producing these things. They've always shipped them in. And then when sanctions basically close that door, they've been unable to get them. Um, you mentioned the, the, the T-90, which again, same thing. I had heard a number of folks say like, well, you know, it's, it's the newest Russian tank after the T-14, which I'll talk about in a second. But like, you know, it's got to be better. It's, you know, almost brand new it, it's got to be better than the right. m1 which is right it's around. younger than the other thing so therefore it's better right but in reality like when you look at a t90 it's really just a i mean it is a highly upgraded t72 but it's right. basically based on technology that the russians have been using since the late 60s early 70s so it's yeah. it still suffers from all the same design shortcomings as the the t62s and the t or sorry the t60s t62s and the t72s um, the, the problems that have plagued Russian tank design for years and years and years, for decades. Um, now to say nothing of like the, the T-14 Armada, which you'll recall that was like going to be the new Russian super tank that right, yeah. uh, 
the one broke down in Red Square during the parade, which of course everyone laughed about. And again, at the end of the day, the Russians just don't have the industrial capability to produce anything like that at scale. Um, yeah. I think like even now, the there's like a dozen or so, maybe a few more uh, T-14s even that have been made and they're all, they're all like hidden away somewhere. Kind of similar to you look at their high-end fighters or their, their fifth gen prototypes, like the uh, SU-57, the, Su- the Sukhoi-57 and the, the PAC-50 that they were working on with the Indians. Like, you know, they're, they're incapable of, of producing those. I think like this, the SU-57s, I thought they'd flown maybe a couple of those in Syria, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. but like that was yeah. purely for the cameras. Like they flew them there, dropped some PGMs, then flew them back because I think they've got like, yeah, like 10 of them right? Um, and really no ability to pr- produce them at scale. Um, so, you know, to, to your point, I think, I think as is the want of military analysts and pundits, they saw the amount of new tech that the Russians were producing and they were really, I think, and I'm sure I'm just as guilty as all the rest of them, falling for a lot of the Russian propaganda around these systems, right? Uh, how they were going to be like complete game changers and revolutionary. And they're going to completely like, yeah, they're, they're going to invalidate all Western technology because of their, they're so advanced. But ultimately at the end of the day, A, none of this equipment seems to work as advertised and B, they can't actually even produce it in, in numbers that make a difference. I mean, we always look again, right. The, the problem, the the trap a lot of folks fall into is when they think of Russia today, they think of the Soviet Union, say, like during World War II, yeah. when the Soviet Union was churning out you know, T-34s in massive numbers and basically rolling, you know, like in Stalingrad, running them, rolling them off the production line and right into battle. Well, right. that's not what Russia is today. Like they, they are not yeah. the Soviet Union. They don't have the ability to do that. And frankly, um, we saw this trend over about the last decade, decade and a half in the Russian military, where they were actually trying to get away from that, uh, you know, the old Soviet uh, methodology of, okay, we're just, rather than overwhelmed with numbers and low tech, they actually had undertaken an effort to, we're going to vastly modernize, we're going to build, you know, like the T-14, mm-hmm. um, the Sukhoi 57, uh, a whole new breed of, of next generation capabilities and will in fact shrink the Russian military, make it more professional, more educated, more capable, uh, kind of following along more like the U.S. model if you have a, a smaller, more capable military. Um, right. The problem being is that their tech didn't really get there. I don't think their, their tactics really made it there. Um, so at the end of the day, they kind of went into Ukraine with the worst of all worlds. They had a smaller force than, say, you know, the Russian army of 20 years ago or the Soviets. Um, but they also were do- going in with technology that was unproven and largely incapable of doing the things that their doctrine thought it ought to be able to do. Well, going from a massive horde mentality to a more, um, like you said, professional, uh, streamlined, um, focused military. I mean, you've got to have a lot of things going for you. It's not something that's going to happen in a generation. You know, it's going to take generations to get there. If you have 
all of the right pieces in place, right? So you got to have the right industry and technology. You've got to have the right leadership. And I struggled to see when they did. You know, there was like this window of hope, right, in the 90s. Mm. You know, when when the Soviet Union collapsed and, and, and you're like, oh, man, OK, cool. They're they're going to pull their their crap together and, and, and get with it. And then that didn't last very long. So, yeah, I guess you I guess you're right. You can sort of see that um, that that spark, that start of a genesis of changing into something that would be more lethal, more capable. But then I think they just kind of tripped over their own feet with all the other, you know, just stuff that they got involved in um, well, and, and in their own power struggles. Yeah, and I think that was part of it. I think also the the other trap that they fell into is you look at all the Russian military engagements over, you know, going back to like Georgia, right, Chechnya, and Syria uh, over the last, you know, going back to like two thousand eight. Um, a lot of those wars, I th- or those conflicts, I think reinforced the wrong lessons for the Russians. Sort of like, I mean, it had a similar impact. Um, on the United States, and there's been plenty of ink spilled on this, like, hey, the global war on terror taught us, you know, got us really comfortable operating in uh, a, a, a uh, environment in which we control the sky. We, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have uncontested communications and, and whatnot. <laughs> um, now, if nothing else, watching, and, and I think the Russians took sort of the same, the, the same lessons from Georgia and Chechnya and Syria. They thought like we can operate with almost impunity because we're the Russian military. We have all this high tech, awesome technology that we've only really ever used against you know, vastly inferior enemies. And we're just going to do the same thing in Ukraine that we did in Georgia and Chechnya and Syria. And right. they discovered that was not the case. Um, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. I think the two big ones being that uh, since 2014, a lot of Western countries, the United States included, have been putting a lot of effort and energy into helping, uh, helping and advising and help and building up the Ukrainian ability to resist. And then they also really underestimated the that that resistance potential within the Ukrainian people. You know, it wasn't Georgia, mm-hmm. it wasn't Chechnya, it wasn't Syria. You know, these right. were these were people with a, I would say, an incredibly coherent and, and unified nat- national identity that had mm-hmm. been trained, equipped, and prepared by the Western, you know, by NATO in the United States. Um, so all of that, that swagger and ego that the Russian army walked into Ukraine with ended up getting them smacked really, really hard in the face. Well, that and when you surround yourself with people who won't tell you hard truths, then then you, if you've got it in your mind that, well, Ukraine's going to be like, like, you know, this, it's going to be like Syria or it's going to be like the, and it's going to be like Georgia, but we could just roll in there. And then you start to believe your own hype. And that's what it just seems like to me. Like, like you said, you know, we we think we're going to just do this blitzkrieg and roll in. And you could see that across the board. It's like that, just that arrogance. And, uh, and I guess that's what scares me is right. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you find your way through that and get to the other side without it getting out of control? Yeah, no, and that's a great point. So, um, and, and real quick, one of the things that you had said previously that I wanted to come back to as far as mm-hmm. the, the, the failure of the, 
ability of the Russian military to truly modernize and reinvent itself. I do think you hit on the point there where um, the Russian economy has, in their military industrial complex, has really never been at a point. It could do one or two, it could either mass produce crap um, or it could produce high end stuff in incredibly small numbers, small to the point of really being ineffective. Right. You also had a population, which, as I mentioned, was act like the, the life expectancy was actually dropping due to a number of factors. Uh, like I said, alcoholism, drug abuse, suicides are all were all on the rise in Russia even before this came about. Um, you saw a brain drain where basically any Russian that could get out of the country to go work somewhere else did. Uh, all to say that you didn't really have a population that was uh, healthy enough, educated enough, to, uh, and motivated enough to really form the nucleus of that smaller but much more professional and highly trained military. Yeah. Uh, so now to your next question about you know, how, where do we go from here? What are the dangers of escalation? Um, I do honestly think looking across the landscape of Russia's military leadership, you know, it's, it's undeniable that they have not been honest with Putin about the actual battlefield conditions. That said, I can't imagine he is unaware of how badly things are going. At the end of the day, it's, it's kind of some double think. Like everyone yeah, has, yeah. everyone in the Russian inner circle has to tell themselves that they're going to win and everything's going okay. And the special military operation is, is, is proceeding exactly how the great leader has, yeah. has foreseen it. It's not um, Hitler in a bunker moving, you know, markers around on a map for divisions that don't exist. No, no, we're, we're, we're yeah, it's certainly not yeah. at that point. Um, I do think, you know, the, the, the ego will become a gigantic challenge here because like right. we started off at the, at the beginning, Putin needs a win of some sort. Like he has so de-scoped his original objectives that you know, he's trying to find something that he can achieve. Now, I don't even think, well, there is no world I see in which the Russian military gets to the borders, clears all the way to the borders of Kherson, Zaporizhia, uh, and uh, Donetsk, like that, that's just not going to happen. So, you know, the ability of Putin to claim that he's liberated these oblasts and fully incorporated them into the Russian Federation, I, I just don't see that happening. Right. Um, I think that there's, there's just not the, the, the military potential left to achieve that. I do think that there is a world in which he gets to more defensible borders uh, sometime. It's got to really be like before spring and then draws a line in the sand and says, okay, this is Russian territory, anything beyond this. And I threatened to use weapons of mass destruction, most likely nuclear. Um, that's a huge gamble. I don't know that he would do that, but I really don't see any other way for him achieving what, what I would assess to be really the only salvageable and acceptable end state to him. Um, and I've had this conversation with a bunch of folks, particularly when it comes to concerns about escalation and are we going to go to World War Three? Is there going to be a thermonuclear war because Putin's going to push the button because he just gets right. angry, like too angry at some point. And, and I honestly 
don't see that. I mean, there's been tons of conversations going on through back channels and, you know, between the various governments at play. Um, I think everyone involved understands the stakes as far as nobody, Russians included, well, Russian government, um, their state propagandists say all sorts of crazy things. But, you know, the Russian government, government leadership understands and I don't think wants to go to a thermonuclear exchange over Ukraine. Um, and the other, you know, the, again, is <clears throat> there was some concern, like if Putin's dying and he thinks he's going to lose, does he decide to push the button anyway? But it's not that simple. Like in neither the Russian system nor the American system can the commander in chief push a big red button and Hmm. missiles are in the air. There are so many folks between when Putin decides to launch and somebody actually turning the key or pressing the button that fires something that there will be an intervention before there Hmm. simply because no one wants to live in a world of thermonuclear war. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, I think it's a valid fear that people have if, if they're not in the know, right. If they're not seeing some of the things, if they're just kind of just generally watching this, because I mean, we all grew up with that, right? I mean, you and I are roughly the same age. We, We grew up in that, that time period, you know, as a kid where, you know, I lived, I don't know about where you grew up, but you know, I lived within, you know, a few miles of McDill air force base that, that thing was going, you know, if, if the balloon yeah, went up, a, that place a, was going to be a bright light. And I was probably going with it. And as a child growing up with that, you know, it just becomes a part of you. Um, and I still think about that. Um, and then of course, you know, you and I, we have children now, which makes us cowards, right? I mean, automatically, cause you're, you're just worried about, you know, your kids and, and the world that, that, uh, you're leaving them. Um, so I think it's a natural tendency to think that way that, yeah, he's, because it all goes back to ego and you know as smart as he has been putin in in a lot of ways and and has built something out of almost nothing you know what i mean like just kind of rebuilding uh russia to make it you know at least appear bigger than it is um but there's a lot of ego involved and i can see that fear of this guy is just going to throw a tantrum at the end and say, well, if I can't win, no one will. But I mean, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to go to that. You know, I've been wrong once or twice in my life. Hopefully I'm not wrong about this. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously I think we all hope that somebody just walks in and just puts a bullet in his brain and, and we just call it good. Uh, I don't, it doesn't sound like that's anywhere in the future because of what you talked about where he's, he's spent years and years and years insulating himself uh, to protect himself from a lot of threats. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, there's no succession plan uh, right. for Vladimir Putin, and he's done that yeah. by design. Right. Um, you know, I don't know what happens if, if and when you know Ukraine wins and and the Russians are expelled from the country. Uh, I think that you know one of the the closest comparison I can think of, and I've made this point to some folks that. The Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan in 1989 didn't directly cause the fall of the Soviet Union, but that and all of the losses that were suffered during that war were a huge contributing factor to the growing discontent that eventually then contributed to the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, I mean, the argument, there is an argument, there are many folks that argue that if Vladimir Putin doesn't win in Ukraine, 
or if and or if there's some sort of general uprising against his rule, you could see the fracturing of the Russian Federation. And I don't know if there's I don't know I don't know enough about internal Russian politics to mm-hmm. know whether or not there'd be viable you know if the Federation broke up if there'd be viable local governance. Uh, again, I know that the the Kremlin and Moscow has gone to great lengths to strengthen that control over the the outlying areas of the Russian Federation. So, I mean, I would see one of two scenarios if Russia were to lose this war. Um, In the more likely, Putin is replaced in one way, shape or form, either by coup or he steps down or loses the next election or whatever that may be. And then I think that whoever the new leadership is basically tries to do a reset with the with the international community and says, yep, that was Putin and his cronies. Right. Like, don't blame us for that. Please lift the sanctions and let's normalize relations. Um, and then there's, I think it's less likely, but the one that's been bandied about a little bit about if Putin loses, you see a fracturing of the Russian Federation. Um, and countries start to, to go their own way uh, or all these new countries go their own mm-hmm. way, which is attractive for a lot of those folks in the sense that, again, that also allows them to divorce themselves from the legacy of Putin and the war in Ukraine. And again, hope to resume some normal relations with the international community. Well, that gets into that sort of nightmare scenario too, that we already went through once when the Soviet Union collapsed is you don't want chaos because at the end of the day you do have nukes and all kinds of other stuff just floating around so you you at least want a level of control over that so you know it's kind of one of these like pick your poisons which which do you really want to happen because you're right there isn't really a succession plan i've heard that multiple places um so the idea of him just being removed from play actually it could probably make it worse yeah, I mean, th- th- again, there is always that comparison made, and there was a ton of fear when the Soviet Union fell that with all these "quote unquote" loose nukes rolling right. around that some un- unsavory characters would get a hold of them. Right. I would offer that we have, a, coincidentally, we have a model on on how that works. Uh, hmm. A lot of folks don't realize this, but after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the country of Ukraine, it was the fourth largest nuclear power in the world for a brief period of time because they yeah. in fact inherited a bunch of Soviet nukes. And then there was the, uh, the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, where the Ukrainian government at the time uh, signed a, an agreement with the United Kingdom, the United States, and the Russian Federation to return their nuclear stockpile to the Russians for dismantling in mm-hmm. return for those three countries the U.S., the United Kingdom, and Russia, uh, making assurances to protect the sovereignty and respect the sovereignty of Ukraine's territory. So, yes, I would see a similar model if the Russian Federation were to fracture. Uh, For one thing, a lot of these countries, or the, the, whatever countries would emerge from that, likely don't have the infrastructure uh, and the, 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 uh, the economy, really, to support those sorts of weapons storage and yeah. uh, the means to use them. So if nothing else, I think that would be an opportunity to, you know, the, the Western world or, or whoever the United Nations, whoever were to undertake that, that effort 
to offer, you know, free of charge, we will take those weapons off your hands and we will dismantle them and render them safe um, mm. so that you can focus, you know, your, your new country's very, very small economy on more important things. Right. So essentially what you're saying is uh, leverage, leverage what you have. In this case, the commodity that you have is, is nuclear weapons. Leverage that for uh, international aid, for recognition, for a variety of things. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's exactly what Ukraine did in 94. Like yeah. they could have that's tried to hold on to all those nukes and those, I mean, they also destroyed like all of their tactical or their strategic bombers and a bunch of the other equipment and vehicles that they had inherited from the Soviet Union. Um, now, yeah. obviously in the long run, didn't work out particularly well for the Ukrainians, but that's also, I mean, I don't think anyone was quite planning on the Russians so blatantly going back on their word on that one. Right. No, no, that's, that's an interesting thought though. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, Wagner group. What, what the hell is that? I mean, I know, but let's talk about that. The Wagner group. Yeah. So the Wagner private military company, I mean, it's obviously Russia's largest and most successful, uh, PMC. I mean, they've been growing fairly significantly, uh, probably over like the last decade or so. What's particularly pernicious about Wagner is that they work in a bunch of different spaces beyond where you would normally think about mercenaries. Uh, mm -hmm. Their leadership uh, acknowledged in an interview, I believe it was last month, that in fact, Wagner played a hand in some of the disinformation and influence operations against the United States during the 2016 presidential elections. Uh, we know for a fact that they're engaged in all sorts of influence operations in Africa and other places in the developing world, seeking to advance Russian interests, both economic, well, economic government and military. Uh, you know, they are kind of a bit of a, a jack of all trades. Um, and, and they have historically kind of straddled that line or provided more of a gray to black deniable uh, right. capability to the Russian government. But in particular, I would actually offer probably with the Russian intervention in Syria, we saw a lot of Wagner yeah. uh, mercenaries get involved there. And that was where sort of started to see the shift from operating almost completely in the black and the shadows to being a little bit more gray. We've seen Wagner, I think after Syria, there was Libya where we saw some large deployments. And then obviously with Ukraine, they've just been, blatant out in the open in the last year. Now, every indication is Wagner was heavily involved since 2014 in Ukraine, uh, doing the, the, the little green men, basically augmenting the Russian-backed separatists in Donbass, uh, participating in the seizure of Crimea. Uh, but yeah, then just a, a gradual escalation until now, you know, in 2022, 2023, Wagner is an army all into themselves. They've got their own social media, which hilariously is constantly fighting with the Russian Ministry of Defense about credit <laughs> for battles. Uh, the, the Wagner leadership was on uh, Telegram earlier this week begging the Russian military for more ammunition while also kind of well, insinuating or outright accusing the Russian Ministry of Defense of undermining their efforts so that, you know, the so so the Russian military could blame Wagner if the war were to fail in Ukraine. Um, 
it, it's been fascinating to see their expansion. And Wagner's not the only one. Um, they're just like the most the most prominent and, and, and out front. Hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say you posted something about um, about the ammo which you mentioned, and then about but also recruiting. Weren't they recruiting from prisons and now it's basically like, well, the Russian army needs to recruit from prison. Like, like it seems like they're tripping over each other at this point. Yeah, exactly. So Wagner started the whole Russian prison system recruiting program. Um, mm-hmm. They were straight recruiting whoever would raise their hand. So lots of rapists, murderers, drug dealers, like all the absolute worst scum. Uh, because they were offering basically full pardons for any prisoner who would enlist. Uh, they promised them like huge bonuses and great pay. And then at the end of their tour, they would be absolved. You know, their, their records would be expunged and they would be back out on the street. I'm not quite sure how the Russian people would feel about that. I would certainly <laughs> have some questions if I were them. Um, but regardless, back to the point of Wagner needed, needed and needs bodies to feed in the meat grinder. And Russian convicts were a great source, at least initially, for that. What we saw in the first couple months of the Wagner recruitment drive is they were just recruiting hand over fist. Uh, the, the problem being is they weren't training them. They actually ended up not really paying them. <laughs> um, and then they were just feeding them into the meat grinder and getting them killed in human wave attacks. And we actually started to see that... Uh, recruitment drop off significantly <laughs> not even like your most hardened murderers and 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 rapists that were going to spend the rest of their lives in russian prisons were willing to do that versus going to ukraine and dying in a human wave attack or uh, as we saw in some of the videos that wagner put out themselves executing uh members of their organization that refused to fight with like sledgehammers smashing their heads and all sorts of absolutely horrific stuff um but yes so about a couple a month or so ago now the uh we believe the ministry of defense the russian ministry of defense put an end to wagner's recruitment of prisoners um ostensibly i think the argument that the ministry of defense made at the time was they didn't want rapists and murderers on the front lines because surprise surprise they don't necessarily comport themselves as professional soldiers, which was leading to all sorts of second and third order challenges uh, in Ukraine. But in reality, the Russian military wanted to start recruiting prisoners. Uh, Arguably, the Russians or or ostensibly the Russian military has been recruiting uh, folks with former or prior military or law enforcement experience. So uh, to what extent that is true or is not, I I can't say. but frankly, at the end of the day, it looks like the, the military is having the same challenges because the Russian military was has been employing increasingly so their conscripts and now their prisoners in the same way as Wagner, just pushing them untrained and under-equipped into human wave attacks and dying in horrific numbers. So again, it, I don't believe that the prisoner recruitment is going to be a very viable alternative for much longer, but right. it was just super fascinating because it looked as if, and it was my belief that this was the Ministry of Defense basically trying to cut Wagner off from our recruitment source, plug into it themselves, so as to have better battlefield effects as part of this very macabre uh, back and forth between Wagner and the Russian Ministry of Defense, where they basically like are squabbling online over you know who's responsible for the most victories, 
and I yeah. again use the term victory very loosely uh, on the on the uh, Eastern Front in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, well, you look for fractures, right? And I mean, that's one of the things that you look for is, is seams in the boundary lines, and, and that's definitely indicative of that. Um, but you're right. I mean, the prison thing, it, it's a, it's a bandaid on a bullet wound. I mean, how many prisoners, it's not just, you just take all prisoners. I mean, it's gotta be some sort of, uh, you know, metric of, of what kind of prisoner. So what, so now what percentage of the prisons are going to be able to recruit from? So yeah, it's, it's a piddly amount. I'm sure it's not going to, it's not going to bolster divisions, you know? No, <laughs> and then, even at the height, yeah, even at its height, it wasn't producing. Right. I mean, I think you know, a few thousand, maybe 10 ish or so at most. Um, yeah. But, but Wagner burned through those pretty quickly. Right. Because there's no training. Right. And so that's the, that's the other thing that we haven't really t- touched on is you, uh, equipment. It doesn't matter how good the equipment is, the training. Right. And I had some guys on the show a couple, couple months ago, we were talking about this cause we're, you know, we we're kind of looking at helicopter, you know, there's uh, a plethora of video coming out of this conflict that you can analyze uh, different things. And one of the, the takeaways that, you know, we were coming with is, you know, how many helicopter shoot downs that, you know, there, there's just flat out mistakes that you can tell there's just a lack of training and a lack of understanding of the tactical scenario that you find yourself. So you can throw as many bodies as you want at a problem. And that worked really cool in World War II, um, where the technology was not where it is now, right? I mean, th- there was a, there was a saturation point where you could beat technology with bodies. I don't know that we're there anymore. I don't know that we have. I don't know that anyone can throw that level of bodies at at technology and and come out on top. And so you've got to have training to go with all that high tech equipment you want to build, all these T nineties and SU fifty sevens and all this stuff. Yeah, no, and um, again, unfortunately, the Russians are kind of like they've got the worst of all worlds. Um, yes, they still currently have a battlefield advantage as far as numbers of troops are concerned, sure. but those troops are in large part, mostly untrained. In fact, I was just, uh, looking through an article today about a uh, Russian regiment that they were all brand new conscripts. They received less than a month of training and then they were sent to the battlefield and using human wave attacks suffered like almost a hundred percent casualties and like the remainders are still getting like thrown into battle and basically, you know, they're, they're completely combat ineffective um, versus now at this point, the Ukrainians, Oh, well, sorry. The, but on the Russian technology side, I mean, none of these conscripts know how to use anything particularly advanced. I mean, they're issuing them. I've seen the videos of like rusty, AKs that are falling apart and non-functional, uh, minimal yeah. ammunition. Uh, Mosin Nagants from World War II. Mosin Nagants from World War II have been spotted all around the battlefield. Um, so the Russian army of today, in some cases, using technology from the Soviet Union in World War II, but without the completely overwhelming numbers that they enjoyed. Right. And you, what's important to note is like when the Soviet Union pushed back the the Germans in World War II, it was not an easy thing. Like it was, they, again, right. they suffered horrific casualties. It was incredibly slow going. But the difference was that the German army by 1944, 45 was a shadow of itself. It had been completely yeah. decimated. It was fighting a two front war on the Western front, even yeah, though it, it did have, 
in yeah. some cases, better technology. It was unable to field any of it in any appreciable right. numbers, much like Russia today. <laughs> Whereas Ukraine today is actually a closer analog in my mind to the Soviet Union in hmm. 1944, 1945, in the sense that they're, they are suffering significantly fewer casualties. The stat, the, the statistic I've seen, which I believe is seven to seven to one, seven Russians killed for every one Ukrainian. Um, but their technology is better. Um, a lot of, they captured a ton of those modernized T-72s uh, from the Russians. So like the top tier Russian tanks, uh, the Ukrainians actually captured and have repurposed a bunch of those, which are now going up against, you know, like Russian T-64s and whatever <laughs> it is that they're pulling, you know, or these MTLBs with naval guns bolted to the top of them. Um, so, so the Ukrainians actually have the better technology. They're getting the main battle, the new Western main battle tanks. Uh, the first Leopard 2s from, I believe it was Germany or Poland. No, it was Poland. Arrived, uh, I think it was like two weeks ago. The Ukrainians are finishing their training on Leopard 2s in Poland. Uh, I know that the Challengers are st the Challengers are still en route from the UK. The M1 Abrams are going to take a while. But the point being, you know, you have those, you have the Bradley armored personnel carriers, uh, the ARX-10 uh, main battle tanks from France, like all of this high, this advanced and incredibly capable and proven technology and equipment right. to say nothing like we could go down the whole, the buffet line of MLRSs and the M107 artillery pieces and all these switchblade lo loitering munitions. Like Ukrainians are just getting tons of highly advanced and highly capable equipment while still kind of maintaining their combat power. And I would offer in some cases, like they, they have been able to actually rotate forces out, reconstitute them, retrain them. Mm -hmm. um, like I was saying, they've sent troops to Poland and uh, the United States and the UK to like actually get advanced training and come back. So it, it, the advantage really, in my mind, seems to be on the Ukrainian side long-term. Um, now that you know the, the the downside of thinking about a long-term strategy and what Putin I think is banking on is Western support or, or NATO support uh, for Ukraine to wane if this goes on long enough. Thus far, I, I haven't seen any real indication of that. But again, but back to like your question about how does the battlefield look? I think as we start to move closer to what we're expecting for the the spring Ukrainian counteroffensives. When we, when we get to that phase, you'll see a Russian army that's highly, highly uh, degraded, lots of combat ineffective formations, super low on ammunition, no real ability to, to uh, reconstitute destroyed vehicles, precision guide munitions, even artillery is proving to be a challenge. Artillery shells and rockets are proving to be a challenge for them versus the Ukrainians who admittedly have been on the defensive for about the last month and a half but they've been husbanding their resources. They've been integrating that advanced training that they've been receiving and the, the new equipment that's just flowing in. So what I wanted to ask you to kind of finish up, because I've taken a lot of your time and I appreciate it. Um, you're a special force officer. Special forces traditionally uh, operated behind the lines or, or working with uh, indigenous forces, you know, uh, people that were, uh, basically in the Ukraine situation. So 
what what is a special forces officer doing in a situation like this just just talking in generalities you know what is that like for the guy on the ground yeah so you know in generalities uh to be successful in in this sort of scenario uh you would be looking at basically two competing but complementary kind of activities. Um, I'll start with the foreign internal defense. Uh, so, you know, within the context of Ukraine, what we, as I mentioned, there has been a lot of training and preparation and equipping going uh, prior to February of 22. In fact, Special Operations Command Europe had been working closely with Ukrainian Special Operations Forces to do a lot of this preparation. So from a foreign internal defense perspective, as a special forces officer, you're you're building resistance potential uh, within the indigenous population. So we saw this play out where Ukrainian special operations forces uh, were working with the Ukrainian territorial defense forces. So think of these as like an organized government militia. Uh, They were very, very part-time uh, but kind of also self-organized around whatever their communities were and uh, special operations, special forces, uh, soldiers would help organize them, give them some initial training, uh, get them so they could at least be proficient with, you know, shoot, move, communicate, medicate, treat the wounded, etc. cetera, uh, with the idea of being at least in the pre-conflict phase building up that resistance potential as a deterrent to say the Russians actually launching a full scale invasion. And we definitely saw that play out in Ukraine when those territorial defense forces who were still maintaining contact with were being directed by Ukrainian SOF uh, were instrumental in slowing down and degrading and ultimately helping to defeat the Russian thrust towards Kyiv. Uh, there's been plenty of stories now about the, the territorial defense forces either identifying and calling in artillery strikes or airstrikes on Russian columns, uh, putting out mines and, and IEDs and other uh, methodology, uh, other obstacles to slow down or defeat uh, the Russian advance on Kyiv. The other side of that equation uh, another special operations specialty, and as a special forces officer, a particular passion of mine is unconventional warfare, uh, which is sort of that more traditional behind the enemy lines uh, activities to conduct uh, sabotage, influence operations, subversive activities uh, in order to ultimately degrade uh, and, and support the conventional fight. And a lot of that was based off of those areas in Ukraine where Ukrainian Special Operations Forces advised, equipped, trained by U.S. and NATO Special Operations Forces uh, had those territorial defense forces who had been organized prior to the Russian occupation of those areas of like eastern Ukraine. We saw this in Kherson and Zaporizhia, other areas of Donbass then found themselves behind the enemy lines and then using that organization and that training have then been conducting some of those low level attacks that you've seen all across the occupied areas. The, uh, the attacks against, uh, 
Russian collaborators, the destruction of bridges, the identification of weapons caches or troop concentrations that then the Ukrainians have been hitting with long range fires, missiles, the, the MLRSs. Um, so, you know, really as a special forces officer, the going, harkening back all the way to the founder of special forces pro predecessor, the office of strategic services during world war II, uh, wild bill Donovan, his whole thing is he wanted operators to be PhDs that could win bar fights. Our most casually producing weapon and what we as special forces soldiers bring to the battlefield is our intelligence, our brains, our ability to organize and train and, and direct uh, working by, with, and through others. So, you know, yep, we all pride ourselves on being great shooters and we can jump out of airplanes and we, we're all amazing at, at physical fitness and that's that and the other thing. But what we, what we bring and what we would be doing in this scenario is doing what we've been seeing the Ukrainian special operations doing, doing that high level pre-conflict uh, and then during conflict, organizing and directing these activities um, by the indigenous, by the locals, in this case, the territorial defense forces to basically set the conditions through these indirect activities to support the, the battlefield operations, the larger, more conventional fights. Yeah. Yeah. It's a thinking man's game, I guess. Um, I just thinking about, like you said, cause, cause we have been, uh, my last job in the army, we were overseeing training and I know we had guys in Ukraine and I was just thinking about something you said, you know, you could be there training with these guys and next day you wake up and you're behind, behind the lines. And, uh, it's a sort of a terrifying thought, but, but you're right. These very small, um, these very small events can have strategic outcomes and effects and slow things down. And, um, it, it, yeah. Well, and it's, it's been really, um, again, I have nothing but the utmost pride and respect for the Ukrainian special operations forces. They've taken everything that we've given them and, and taught them. Um, and of course, you know, adapted and modified and made it their own and have been yeah. achieving outsized effects. But I do think for the United States and for other countries, particularly on the tail end of the global war on terror, the important lesson to take away is the proper role of special operations activities vis-a-vis broader, large-scale combat operations. Um, yeah. The global war on terror, for right, wrong, or indifferent, very much became a, a special operations fight. Um, you know, the vast majority of the media and, and, and the books and the video games all focused on special operators doing the very specific, you know, direct action, shooting terrorists in the face. You know, obviously a lot of uh, emphasis on counterinsurgency, which is a special operations core mission. Um, and, and I think as a result of that, there is a little bit of a loss of understanding of where special operations sits in the grander scheme of large scale operations as a, as a shaping operation, not as the, the main effort right. itself. And, and that's certainly something that we've seen in Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian special operations forces, you know, for the, for the most part where we've seen the greatest success is when the activities that they are directing and, and engaged in are in direct support to and, and aid that, broader, large scale fight. Um, right. so like most 
most most specifically, we were looking at, at a lot of the uh, unconventional warfare activities that were happening in and around Kurasan City, the capital of the Kurasan Oblast, uh, ahead of in the in the months leading up to the Ukrainian the conventional Ukrainian counteroffensive that liberated that city and basically drove the well it did it drove the Russians completely off the north bank of the Dnipro River uh, back onto the south side, but. The months leading up to that counteroffensive by conventional forces, you saw Ukrainian special operations forces working by, with, and through uh, their their local, the indigenous, the, the the networks they had set up pre-conflict to do those dropping their key bridges to prevent the Russians from reinforcing, identifying their troop concentrations and their ammo dumps so they can be destroyed by long-range fires, thereby denying the Russians the ability to really effectively resist, uh, as well as some of those. Uh, clandestine activities like attacks against Russian collaborators or the, or the installed Russian government officials to undermine uh, civilian hmm. Russian civilian control of Kharasan city. And once those conditions were set, that all contributed greatly to the to the lightning success of the conventional Ukrainian attack that ultimately came through and did the main effort, did the thing, and liberated Kharasan city and, and pushed the Russians across the Dnipro River. Yeah, it seems almost like a, a tailor-made scenario for special forces, at least as I understand it, kind of this certain scenario. Because you're right, the coin environment did special operations in general took such a front seat. But I know from talking to you know experienced special forces guys who operated before the global war on terror, they and they sort of I don't want to say complained, but you know they they, they would make the comments like. There's such a, a radical shift in the way the special forces operates now because it, it used to be direct action was was on the list, but it wasn't necessarily at the top of the list. And now it just seems like everybody's a door kicker and everybody's just going in at just, you know, like you said, shooting terrorists in the face. And that really wasn't necessarily the uh, the meat and potatoes of the special forces community. Absolutely. Oh. Well, cool, man. I have taken up a ton of your time and, um, uh, I'm so glad that we got to, to do this. This was a good chat and uh, I learned a lot and I appreciate you uh, taking an evening to do it with me. Uh, hey, Brian, the, the pleasure is all mine. I appreciate you giving me the time. Always, uh, always a pleasure to chat and uh, share some ideas. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, hopefully you won't be having to post updates on, uh, on everything that's going on because hopefully we'll see an end to it. But I, I fear that it, it won't be coming anytime soon. Do you yeah. post anything like on Twitter? Like, cause you, I mean, you have some pretty insightful observations of things that are going on or is that just kind of your stream of consciousness on Facebook? Yeah, no, uh, I, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, and, and Twitter. Okay. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll have to get those from me and share. Cause I, I mean, I, I, I read all your stuff and I mean, it's, it's a great snapshot into what's going on. Some great analysis and, and some cool videos sometimes as well. But, um, you know, end of the day, this is a terrible situation. And I, what I think is, is important and interesting is, you know, it's not necessarily, it's not the Russian people, right? It's, it's a couple of, it's a couple of assholes who, who made some bad choices. And, uh, there's a lot, a lot of people suffering because of them. And, uh, it's, I hate it. Yeah, no, undoubtedly. I mean, there is no mistake. Like this was a war of, of convenience chosen by Putin and his inner circle, um, you know, the extent to which the broader Russian people uh, play a role in that. I mean, I think that's something that they're going to have to wrestle with at some point. 
uh, after this conflict is over, since by their inaction, by their apathy, they've allowed it to continue uh, with Mm -hmm. all the horrific excesses that that's involved. But I do think, to your point, unfortunately, this is going to go for much, much longer. Um, Although I am confident that when it is said and done, Ukraine will have restored its territorial integrity and liberated its people. And then we'll be begin the even harder work of rebuilding the country. 